This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We appreciate you listening along to some E2B thought leadership. We've got a lot to unpack today. Before we get to our main content, I want to make sure you're heading to our website, opportune.com. For more information on some of the strategies, technologies, and more that we might break down today, and make sure that you're heading to our site as well for more opportune content, including more episodes of the podcast, more videos, articles, and more. You can also find E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous episodes as well as notifications when we drop new ones. So on today's episode of E2B, we're turning our attention to the trend of environmental, social, and corporate governance strategies, or as most folks in the business world know them as ESG strategies. They've become a key metric for companies across industry to build a more equitable company, one that is also more attractive to investors, partners, stakeholders, employees, and more. The advancement of ESG strategies, though, can often be a difficult one to maneuver, especially with often changing standards and a conflict between trying to balance ethical guidelines and maximizing growth and profitability. How do you actually achieve both in a way that is sustainable for the business and for the earth. With our conversation today, we're honing in on why the ESG push continues today across all industries, but also we're going to focus on the oil and gas markets for some specific anecdotes. We're going to break down why it's an important piece of any company's internal and external strategies, what makes for a quality ESG program today, and how to integrate a program that is actually effective. I'm super pleased to welcome our two guests for insights today. Please welcome Amy Stutzman, Managing Director at Opportune, and Reed Brooks, Director also at Opportune. Welcome, Amy. Welcome, Reed. It's really a pleasure chatting with both of you. So I want to begin today's conversation by really emphasizing the importance of clarity of vision when implementing an ESG program. I feel like getting all of those important stakeholders, all of the right players to the table and making sure that it is communicated in a holistic way what that full final vision is for an ESG program can really make or break whether or not it's integrated with vision and whether or not it's integrated in a way that's actually useful for companies. So starting there, what would you say should be the end goal or some of the main metrics that motivate an ESG program? And how should companies and decision makers frame their mindset about ESG's utility? Amy, how about we start with you on this one? Yep, sure. So, you know, when we work on these projects with our clients, the first step is really about strategy development and thinking about how sustainability drives long-term performance. Um, So we would look at how ESG is already integrated into the business and existing metrics. Because in oil and gas, we find there are already many sustainability initiatives that are already ingrained in the business strategy and the culture. For example, 
environmental initiatives um, and employee safety are a couple. Um, so we start by identifying and evaluating those metrics and, and then identifying gaps and then kind of moving on from there. All right, I'll toss the next question over to you, Reed, to make sure that we start off the show with some of your insights as well. Uh, but, you know, on the note of making sure decision makers have that clear vision goal for uh, an ESG program, who would you say are those main stakeholders or professionals within the company or important partners that need to be convinced of an ESG program's utility and feasibility? Break that down for us. Well, I might, I might frame this a bit differently. I don't think companies are, are necessarily looking to convince, but rather begin a dialogue about its current operations and how those operations perform in context of environmental, societal, and governance frameworks. I mean, obvious stakeholders include the investing in the public, but what we're seeing is that uh, company management's working alongside these stakeholders to provide meaningful information about the company's progress towards its goals, whatever those goals might be. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I think it comes back down to maintaining that open dialogue between all parties from decision makers to fresh hires. You know, everyone has a stake in the company's ethical success. So, yeah, I think it's important to be transparent and to bring people into the process. So once we do have a better vision for where to start with ESG, we've got that uh, picture painted a little more clearly. I think it's time to then also have some standards around the quality of your ESG program. So uh, next question for both of y'all, what are the factors that you'd say make for a great ESG report, as well as the factors that influence the success of the outreach that then follows? Are there any baseline standards that work regardless of industry? Yeah, so this is definitely a good question. And it's it's hard right now, you know, because it's it's an evolving area so that it's an area we're following closely and, and we're involved in um, discussions with our clients in the industry. Because I think right now everyone is really trying to work toward those best practices in reporting, right? And then I know, I think we'll talk about it probably a little bit later, but you're seeing a lot of, you know, just there's so many different standards. So we have some efforts going on around convergence of standards as well, but there's just a lot of activity right now with um, leaders working together on this. So as far as playbooks, a couple of examples that I would mention that are relevant to our industry um, are, you know, there's some industry groups such as Energy Infrastructure Council, um, as well as the Energy Workforce and Technology Center. And both of those groups have working groups that are specifically devoted to ESG and providing guidance and resources, you know, things like even reporting templates out to their members. But again, it's just something that's really evolving right now, which is exciting to be a part of that effort. Well, it kind of sounds like a key component is sort of a proactivity or a future-focused mindset, maybe a messaging progress, you could say, making sure to balance the needs and structure of the company today and how that influences your ESG program, as well as balancing the needs of the future and how ESG will shape them. Would you agree? Is that a fair assessment? What do you think? I mean, I think Amy's touched on a lot of the big points, but as long as a company's making meaningful progress, measurable progress, uh, I, I think that's what, in addition to everything she said, is, is, is key. is just what's important to the company, why, and how are they progressing on those topics? 
I know for many industries, having a unified framework in their ESG programs is also very essential for success because uh, it can often create cross-departmental synergy around standards. It can set expectations in a uh, more clear way. So how important would you say that unified set of standards is to the success of an ESG program today? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to say it, right? We're starting to, um, you know, you'll hear this phrase a lot. We're starting to tell tell our stories and tell, you know, here's where we are today. And then just like you said, where, do, where are we heading and how are we going to improve in the future? And then really starting to measure that and track our progress and report that out to our stakeholders. Well, on that note, then uh, g- give us the real story, Amy. Is the industry making any progress at all on this front? Are things still pretty decentralized, messy? I mean, what's the lay of the land today? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to take a first crack or Amy, if you want to take it either way. I mean, I kind of think about this from two perspectives. The first perspective is that even though there isn't necessarily a unified standard or a unified framework, there's like really a lot of great frameworks that are out there currently, whether it's SASB, TCFD, GRI, uh, and and. There's no reason that as a company, they can't use one or more of those current frameworks to create a report that does provide meaningful information to its stakeholders. So I wouldn't say don't start now because there's not just this one unified framework. Um, You know, the second perspective is that a unified framework will benefit comparability uh, and might in some ways level the playing field. But just like we see with any new accounting pronouncement or SEC reporting requirements, there's really not a one-size-fits-all set of disclosures. So even under a unified framework, we think that there'll still be divergences between industries, even between industry participants based on the nature of their business. I mean, every company is different, and so they'll need to prioritize disclosures based on their business. So we're certainly excited by the work being done by the SEC really to, like I said, create that level playing field, but that shouldn't prevent a company from starting now or continuing to build upon efforts they've made to date. You know, I would also encourage companies to get involved with the rulemaking process, specifically with the SEC's efforts. They've done some recent outreach. I think there's about 15 or 16 questions that they've posted and are looking for feedback from all industry participants. So I would encourage, and that's my plug, If you want to get involved, you can reach out to us if you don't want to submit something directly, or if you want to submit something directly, you should do so. But I say this because, you know, as we look back at some of the rulemaking that the FASB did, you know, leasing, RevRec, there was in some cases a lack of representation by the energy industry, and it created some sticky issues that ultimately had to be addressed by, you know, some upstream and midstream consortiums directly with the SEC to ensure that the ultimate stakeholders, the readers of the financial statements, ended up with better information, not worse. So this is where I think getting involved and understanding how this might impact your businesses is a win for the energy industry as well as for the companies themselves. I mean, the SEC is taking this seriously. They have, as recently as the 22nd of March, you know, added a new website Um, So if you haven't seen that, I encourage folks to go look at their climate and ESG risks and opportunities website, as well as highlighting climate related risks as a focus for their 2021 examination. So Amy, I don't know, do you have anything else that maybe I didn't touch on or you want to add there? 
I really like what you said about um, getting involved. I think that's important. Um, again, our industry, you know, for in the press, especially, we tend to get a bad rap sometimes. And as we all are working together to change that and really tell the tell the real story, I think it's important that we get involved um, in this standard setting process and have a voice with the regulators who are determining, you know, what what disclosures are going to be required and what will be important going forward. So I think you said it perfectly. You know, we're surrounded because we work in the industry and our a lot of our peers work in the industry, right? We're, we're surrounded by and we're very knowledgeable about the good things that the oil and gas industry does and the extent of the impact that the industry has on our modern way of life, right? And I think that, you know, you read a lot of um, news to the contrary. And so I think there's just an immense opportunity to educate people on what the industry does and how much of an impact that we have. And, you know, I mean, again, the other thing is, you know, technology, right? The industry is so innovative. And I think it's just important, you know, it's, we have been involved in environmental initiatives, right? We're like one of the heaviest regulated industries that there is. And so I think it's just important that people are getting that information out there in a way that makes a difference. Perhaps the most important part of a successful ESG launch is the capture, the analysis, and the implementation of key data around those important ESG metrics like carbon footprint, employee turnover, managerial efficiency, etc. You know, the data is important, uh, but doing something with it is obviously more important. So as companies look to craft their ESG program and their ESG story, how important do you think the data itself will be? Do you think the numbers have any opportunity to speak for themselves? Or is there another layer that companies need to add to make sure that data is useful and actionable? Yeah, I mean, the data is obviously important, right? And it's like, like Reed was talking about, you know, it's the standards are converging right now. And so as that happens, it'll be nice. Um, comparability is an issue right now with the data that makes it hard to really compare from one company to the next. But I don't think it's enough to just publish a report and let the data do the talking per se. And I don't think that's what's happening. Um, it's something what we're seeing is companies are really embracing these initiatives from the top down and it's becoming a part of the strategy and the culture. Um, what we're seeing is executives are really engaging with their stakeholders on these issues in all kinds of channels, right? So you're hearing ESG talked about in everything from earnings and investor presentations to social media, right? It's just becoming a part of the day-to-day -day discussions. Well, on that note, uh, what kind of ESG data are investors and stakeholders interested in today? And how do you think uh, that should shape some of the priorities around where to capture and emphasize certain data sets? Reed, break that down for us. Yeah. And, and obviously, my answer is intended to really address upstream oil and gas priorities. And, and that's not to the detriment of, of any other sectors or any other industries, but given the nature of the conference. So, I mean, I think there's great value in, you know, the S and the G as far as um, societal and governance and the values that those create. But I think the most meaningful impact that we're seeing our clients try to highlight is around the E. So the emissions, air quality, management of fresh water, produced water, hazardous materials, that type of thing. I think that's where 
the industry really has a way to tell the story, right? They have the ability to say, look, here's where we were, here's where we are now, and here's the progress we're making and really educate people on, you know, some of the technological advancements that don't get much media play, that don't really get highlighted. You only hear the bad news, right? This is their opportunity to start telling those stories. And, and you know, as a guy who works with financials, I obviously gravitate towards the quantitative data saying, you know, metric tons of emissions or carbon intensity. But there's other things that that are required to tell that story. So I think the data is important, but I think how folks frame that data is also important. I mean, I can give you a statistic and frame it three different ways and you'll feel three different ways about it. So I think it's important that we get to tell the story as the industry rather than letting folks tell it for us. You know, and as I mentioned above, each company's priorities are going to differ. So the data that matters is going to differ. And this can be based on the types of assets they operate, where they operate. I mean, in some regions, flaring of associated gas is a major issue for stakeholders. In other states, it's, it's more of the, you know, water management. How are you minimizing your freshwater usage? How are you recycling or disposing of wastewater? Uh, how are you preventing fugitive methane emissions? Uh, those types of things. So I think big picture is, a company really needs to evaluate its operations first using something like a Pareto principle. I mean, the 80-20 rule. Like if I do, there's 20% of my operations that's probably creating 80% of what I might call my ESG headaches. How can I start addressing those? And, and it's really just finding the lowest hanging fruit initially and addressing that with meaningful and consistent progress. I think the data matters, but I think the data is going to be different for each stakeholder. So um, I don't know if that answers the question, but hopefully it does. No, no, no. That definitely answered it. Thank you, Reed. Um, I actually want to follow up on something. You brought up how important it is to be part of that conversation actively around building quality ESG programs. So playing into that energy a little bit, let's get a hot take from both of you. What do you see as the biggest mistakes that still inhibit the success of an ESG launch? What is just really holding back ESGs today and why? Yeah, I mean, I guess as far as mistakes or coming up short, I think that companies that have dismissed ESG thus far or if they haven't started thinking about it, I think they're certainly falling behind right now. So I think, you know, that you really need to start if you haven't start thinking about these issues and how to report on them. And what, from what I've been hearing out in the market and from private equity in particular, I don't think there's an expectation of perfection in year one. Um, so it's like Reed said, right? Like how, just think about what's material and then get started there and just show that you're engaging in the issues and that ultimately you can show progress over time, but I think you start small, like Reed said, and then you scale up over time. So that's what I would say. If, if you haven't started yet, that you're probably a little bit behind. No, I think Amy's point, right, is, is, is valid. I mean, I've seen companies that don't know where to start. There's just like this, yeah. it's a new thing. There's so much data, there's multiple frameworks, and they just go, I can't right now. And instead of just taking simple steps, even if it doesn't meet one or any of the frameworks, but just doing something that's meaningful for their business. I think that really is, is the key. And I think that's where companies, as Amy mentioned, 
will fall behind if they look for this perfect report that that won't really ever happen. I mean, even under a, uh, you know, completely coalesced framework. Of course, we've got to have duality and balance on the podcast, and I don't want to spend the whole podcast just on the issues, so let's shine a little sun on ESG programs today. Uh, Have companies been excelling in any innovative ways that you've both seen uh, with some of their ESG programs? What has been going right with ESG as of late, and why? Going back to something we kind of talked about earlier, I think the industry, technologically, what they've been able to do time and time again with I mean, making uneconomic pricing economic has also led to greener efficiencies. I mean, less flared gas, better infrastructure, um, cleaner completions, multi-pad drilling, electrified frac fleets, um, you know, vapor recovery units, wastewater recycling. The list goes on and on. I mean, it is those continual efforts to become better that I think no one really spends a lot of time talking about, thinking about, not a lot of press on it. And, and I think the, the industry has been a lightning rod for a lot of bad press, and I think there's reasons for it. But I think there's been this fly-under-the-radar approach by the industry in the past, uh, maybe with not enough efforts or, or efforts that missed the mark on educating the public on you know, how these companies are responsibly developing their assets. If you start looking at some of these reports, and I'll just use flaring because it's a popular topic, but... Most companies, when you look at the amount of gas flared as a percentage of their overall production, I mean, we're talking less than a percent in a lot of cases or less than one-tenth of a percent. And I think if you're an outside participant, you think flaring as a rule is just rampant across the United States and people are just burning gas without regard to its you know, economic implications or its environmental implications. And that's just not the case. So, The irony to me is that how little the general public really understands about the oil and gas industry, good or bad, and the impact that the industry has on everyone's lives. I mean, you know, for better or worse, fossil fuels play a role in nearly all of the products people depend on. But for the same reason, you don't hear a lot of good news on a daily basis. It's just not attention grabbing. It's not juicy. It just doesn't get airtime. You know, I hope that we can start to change that message. But there are a lot of smart, hardworking people out there every day making energy cleaner and safer, even if those stories aren't being told or if they're not showing up in your uh, newsfeed. And I, I mean, you know, not to harp on social media, but social media and its algorithms can have a tendency to, you know, to kind of produce groupthink or feedback loops that amplify these negative sentiments in groups that already thought oil and gas was the great evil. You know, Social Dilemma is a good documentary covering this topic, and it's not specific to oil and gas, but it does kind of highlight some of those themes. And I think with that bit of sunshine, that does it for our conversation. For the most part here, this has really been great. Thanks to both of you for your insights. Before we wrap completely, though, last but not least, I want to pull from some conversations with clients of yours. If you had to summarize, what advice do you find you're giving the most when consulting on ESG programs today? What just seems to be commonplace suggestions and strategies? And what should be some actionable items companies now take to put that advice to good use? Let's hear from both of you on this one. Yeah, so, you know, we've already touched on some of this. Um, You know, there's just a wealth of information available right now, and it's difficult to sort through all the different standards that are out there for reporting. Um, So we really spend a lot of time talking about how can we stay focused on what has a material impact to us and kind of 
working through all of all the different standards and all the different like what's evolving as far as the reporting and how do you get that message out. Um, we also talk a lot about how to link performance in ESG initiatives to the long-term business performance, right? Because that's what we've been talking about. It's, that's really what it's all about. Um, so I think Reed touched on this earlier, right? But like a simple example of that would be um, water management, right? Where if you can measure your water usage and the percent recycled, right? We look for ways operationally to be smarter and more efficient with water usage. And then obviously that would ultimately impact financial performance. So, you know, we're spending time talking about ways to really, again, make this a part of our overall business strategy, because ultimately it does impact financial performance and our stakeholders view of of your company versus peers. So there really is an opportunity um, to add a lot of value here and impact the bottom line. And so that's what our discussions are primarily focused on right now. You know, I guess I would say that this isn't a compliance exercise like Amy touched on. This is something that companies need to take seriously because there is, I would say, an existential crisis about whether or not oil and gas can play a role in the energy mix long term. And I think that there is a way that it can, but that way is going to require folks to change some of the things they've been doing historically and take credit for the progress they're making and be open and, and honest about where they're falling short and, and can do better. So I, I think it's really just about opening up and, and again, you know, just having a real dialogue with the industry, the public, and securing energy's future as a, as a fuel source for the world. Couldn't have ended it on a better note. Thank you to both of you. I think that does it for our podcast today. I really appreciate both of you joining us to get a full breakdown on how ESGs are manifesting today, both industry-wide and in oil and gas markets, honing in on some strategies and some tips for how to build a scalable, efficient, and useful ESG program that really brings all the right stakeholders to the table and actually makes some good use out of all that data. So thank you again to both of you for your help in understanding all of this and providing some great thought leadership to our audience. Our guests today were Amy Stutzman, Managing Director at Opportune, and Reed Brooks, Director at Opportune. Amy, Reed, it really was a pleasure. Thanks to both of you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an Opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com. Again, opportune.com. There you'll find more podcasts, articles, videos, and, of course, more episodes of E2B. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening today. It was a pleasure providing you with some great opportune thought leadership. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you next time.